I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Michael Cantor. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to writer Terrell Alvin McCraney. There are so many nuances to what it means to come of age. You start seeing all kinds of things that are socialized at a very early age and crystallized there. I have a deep and abided interest in the future. And in order for us to really invest in the future, we have to investigate the past. It was back in 2003 that Terrell Alvin McCraney first wrote in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. I think he was a graduate student who was writing up a piece that was never published, a semi-autobiographical play that dealt with personal trauma and his own coming of age in Florida, and it was shelved for over a decade. Until eventually it would be adapted and go on to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards as the 2016 film Moonlight. That, of course, was the famous Academy Awards where they gave the best picture to La La Land and then took it back and gave it to Moonlight. Oh, it makes me uncomfortable just remembering that, yeah. It's also won McCraney an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. So with Moonlight, his Broadway play Choir Boy, and his most recent TV show, David Makes Man, McCraney seems to be sharing his stories everywhere. Born in Liberty City, Florida, he spent his youth pursuing the arts both as an actor and writer, ultimately graduating from Yale, where he is currently the chair and professor in the practice of playwriting at the Yale School of Drama. But his work consistently returns to Florida, a place he still calls home. Michael, how did you first get introduced to Terrell's work? I met Terrell through my sister-in-law, Tina Landau. Uh, They're both members of the noted theater company in Chicago, Steppenwolf, and started seeing his work way back at the Vineyard Theater with a show called Wig Out, uh, Head of Passes at the Public Theater, and most recently, Choir Boy on Broadway. Michael recently sat down with McCraney at the Yale Broadcast Studio to talk. It feels like the place where you grew up and its people is essential to a lot of your work. Tell, tell us about Night Manor. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, Night Manor um, was a housing project that was built, I believe, in the late 50s and 60s in the Liberty City area of Miami, which is classified as uh, inner city Miami um, proper, one of the few areas that you know you can name that's within Miami proper. And it's very close to Liberty Square, which is one of the, if not the oldest, but certainly the oldest um, federal housing projects in the country, um, which is where we filmed Moonlight. Barry Jenkins and I lived there for a period of time. We bounced around to many. We lived in uh, Liberty Square. We lived in Night Manor. We lived in a Holiday Inn for a while. And so what was interesting is that about Night Manor or about any of those housing projects is that they they fundamentally have what I call the essence of Miami in them. They are absolutely of Miami, made their ways into the songs of rappers and um, the artists who come from that place. But from about 9 to 12, I lived in a place called Homestead, which um, is about 50 to 49 miles south of Miami um, in a city called Homestead. It's in Florida. It's in Miami-Dade County, and it is night and day different than Liberty City um, in that it's not inner city at all. It's rural. It um, is surrounded by cow pastures and, you know, horse grazing and strawberry and melon patches and fields, and yet there's a housing project right in the middle of all of that um, where what one can classify or think about as, you know, the problems of a housing projects exist. And the difference is that across the street there are cows grazing. 
Um, and across a border, there are, you know, what I like to say where the NRA and the Trump signs are in English again, whereas in Miami, uh, they're in Spanish. So it's, you know, the divisions between socioeconomic and political stances are, are stark, way more stark. This wasn't in, you know, the 60s, the 70s, or even the 80s. This was, you know, 91. <laughs> um, and then Hurricane Andrew came and flattened everything except for the building that I lived in. It destroyed a lot of what was inside the buildings, prompting us to move back to Liberty, uh, Liberty Square, Liberty City. Well, it, it seems like you've drawn on the characters from, the, from these different places in a lot of different works of yours. Well, the places themselves are characters. The very nature and the thing that's so strange about Florida is that, you know, you get characters and ideas from seeing folks and, and names in the news, right? There's the caricature of Florida man. And yet Florida itself, because of the environment, because of its proximity to urban and um, rural areas, uh, its mixture of religious practices, its, um, it being a sort of precipice point, it's a gateway to the Americas, as it's often called, you, you just get a lot of different influences and a lot of uh, culture in the air. Because even in Miami, there's so many parts of the place that you can hear different accents, different lilts, dif different languages. Um, there was a person on Twitter the other day who, who, who said, you know, it's really hard being in Miami and being in a place where you don't speak the language. And there are portions of Miami you can live in, and even the apartment that I have in Miami. A lot of my neighbors do not speak English, mostly Spanish, but I've also lived in neighborhoods where everybody spoke Creole. That's an astonishing feat for an American city. Um, and it has been that way, and, my, and Miami's young history allows that to sort of live and be. I also quickly noticed that Miami's a place um, that governs itself from uh, tourism and on tourism. And so because, you know, tourism isn't paying us to be unique, um, some of these things are getting washed away. And it's important that I tell the story of those things before they all go away. You know, Atapata is a neighborhood uh, of, of mostly Dominican descent, American citizens who are Dominican. And again, you can be in that neighborhood and hear a different kind of Spanish than you would if you were, say, in Little Havana. And that's important to note. One of our students in the, in the School of Drama is uh, from Nicaragua. And you would know that Sweetwater in Miami, in, in Miami-Dade County, has one of the largest populations of Nicaraguans outside of Nicaragua. Those things are, are really important to me because that means there are lives, there are stories, there are uh, happenstances that can only happen in Miami. Similarly to the way, you know, I think De Niro said it best about, you know, New York and how you can inhabit, you know, many different lands in New York in, in a single span of a train ride. Well, if we had a good train system in Miami, <laughs> um, and since we don't, then I'll have to just tell you the stories of it. Now, growing up there, did you know you wanted to tell these stories, or did that aspect come later, like after you tried out acting and sort of... They were one and the same. I mean, I think, you know, I'm lucky in that I found this act of storytelling to be active. I didn't understand storytelling meant, you know, you had to sit down somewhere alone and write something. I, I understood the the performance of storytelling to be communal, to be in a practical thing that you did in front of folks or with people, be it from, you know, again, we have a very outside culture because of the weather. So you see people on their porch or on their storefront telling 
stories, even if it's just of the day. And there's an animation to it. There's a, you know, you, you think people are actually in a fight when they're really just telling a story to each other. You get socialized to hear that and see that so young that you think to yourself, oh, well, this is a part of who I am. Um, and it's not until later that someone tells you, you know, oh, you have to write that down so I can see it. Um, and, and then what's really interesting is that you have to write that down so I can see it so that someone else can pick it back up and perform it again. It's sort of this weird process that you, you have to, um, you know, sort of back, backtrack. You have to learn backwards. But I didn't understand writing as the form of storytelling. It was more so documenting. And so it, I had no choice about that portion because that was everywhere. Even if I was in the most sacred and secular of places, it could be at the park, it could be at my grandfather's church. There was always some understanding of, of translating story. And I knew I needed to be a part of that because stories were the way in which I understood the world. Um, they ordered the chaos enough for me that I could sustain it. And in that way, I mean, I know I've said some controversial things about theater saving my life, which I mean, um, but I don't mean it in the nuance of like, oh, I went to see, you know, West Side Story and it, and it saved me. That's not true. Uh, what I mean is the act of theater, the activeness of what we do in the theater, the coming together in, of community, um, the ability to use story to shape our lives and to give us hope and to see a way forward. That saved my life. Um, if I didn't have that operation, if I didn't have that function, I don't know if I would have survived. So do you find that the telling of the stories of your painful stories from your childhood or turbulent uh, moments to be kind of healing? Or is it just kind of getting them down and then the, it's the community that's really the, that buoys you? In theater, always community is, is at the fore. I mean, I, sometimes I don't even—there's <laughs> been times, and I, and I think this is actually true of everything I do, which probably pisses a lot of folks off, but I don't really even care <laughs> if the thing goes up. As long as we get in a room <laughs> with people and we, are, we go through the process of trying to put the thing together and listening to each other, I'm so excited about that that I'm very happy to go home and be—you know, if I could get paid to do that, I would totally do it. Um, <laughs> When I do, in a way, I mean, I do when uh, in, in teaching. I mean, I get to listen to stories and talk about the best way to execute them and try some things, and you kind of get to go home. It's interesting to me, you know, as a playwright, we think of somebody who's alone and you know struggling with the with a blank page. When in fact, you're always touting collaboration. That strikes me as really unusual from a playwright's perspective. Well, again, it's about best practices, right? And there are many a playwright <laughs> who loves the who love the model that you just described, right? Of them by themselves toiling with, you know, wrestling with the angel, then sort of bringing this thing in and you know telling the director to make it happen, and that works in some places, and in some places is preferred. It's not the theater that I come from. It's not the kind of theater that I made as a child. It's not the kind of theater that I was exposed to. I didn't see a play on Broadway until I was 19 years old. Um, I didn't see a play in a professional theater until I was like 15. Um, and yet I'd been doing street theater, watching street performances, seeing parades, seeing street festivals all my life. And if I need to tell you which one is more engaging, you can kind of just look at my work and see, right? You can see what kept drawing me out of this kind of cushy, velvety seat that I could easily fall asleep in 
and bringing and bringing the pageants um, and the parades into the theater or outside of them. You know, I remember one of my deepest regrets at the Yale School of Drama it, as a student here is that I kept trying to convince them to do some of my pieces outside because that's what they were meant to do. They were literally built to be done outside in the round. And they just kept telling me no because of insurance purposes or all kinds of things. And I was just like, I get that completely. But this play set in this quiet room doesn't allow for the actors to really stretch out and find what they need to in the script. Um, um, you only are going to get that is, is if you're in five-inch heels, and uh, you know, uh, which on me makes you six eight. And you're trying to get the attention of people who are passing by, busy, um, and you want to draw their attention to, you know, age-related uh, complications. Well, you're going to have to do a whole bunch of performing, and you're going to have to do a whole bunch of tactic finding. And that's how your script is made, right? That's, how, that's what you find to, what to write down, because in the moment of how did I get their attention, how long could I sustain it, did they hear me? Did they walk away doing an action, feeling an action? Were they confused? Like that's how you figure it out. If you've got a captive audience, <laughs> you got two, you know, your options become much more limited. And you've got two things to worry about. If they're gonna fall asleep, <laughs> because a lot of them do, and what preconceived notions they came into the room with you having. Now, if they encounter you on the street, all bets are off, because you're on the street. So everybody's on the high alert, and that's important. It's an important place to get people in their vulnerability. When people come in, they think, oh, I'm open. I'm coming into this, this theater space. I'm open. It's actually not. You're coming into this place that more than likely you subscribe to, you've been before, right? Um, and that's just not the only people that's not true for is people who don't go to the theater often. And then so often are we catering to the folks who go all the time, right, that the people who co don't come off and feel like, they're being left out. So it's one of those things where I'm always sort of thinking about how we talk to our audience and why. And I, as a playwright or as a person who creates plays, I'm often thinking about how generous can I be to the people who are walking in here? And when I'm not here to enforce that generosity, what can I leave as a calling card for those folks who've never been here and want to come back? That's a hard job, but I think you know there's there's a there's room. That's why a lot of playwrights, especially from the older guard, love film, right? Because they get to be screenwriter who was in the corner and doing X, and they hand it off to somebody and they go film it, and um, that's what it is. Yeah, and that's what it is. And I think that can be great, but I you know I'm I'm interested in community. I'm interested in 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 those conversations. I think those things sustain me as a human being. Speak, if you would, to the the genesis of. In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue and mm -hmm. how that ended up bringing you to the, to the stage of the Oscar uh, celebration. Well, I think, I mean, in Moonlight, I wrote in 2003. And my mother had just died of age-related complications. And thinking back on it, a lot of what brought me to that moment had to do with um, and Barry Jenkins, who was the director and uh, adapter of that piece, um, talks about it is that he he looked he felt like he was looking at a lot of his own memories. He was he was looking at a lot of memories that I was losing at the time. So I didn't, and I thought to myself, well, my mother's not here with me, and if I don't write these things down, I won't remember them. I won't remember how they happened. I won't remember you know why they're important to me. And so I did. I spent uh, I spent a summer 
really trying to put down things that I, shards of memory that I thought were important to me. A lot of the uh, moments in Moonlight necessarily don't add up to a logical sense, but they add up to an emotional sense. And I just wanted to put them in an order that I could. And uh, it was my first time writing a screenplay, so it was a bit of a mess, um, is a bit of a mess. And um, and I left it there. I just sort of left it alone and continued to write plays because I had written a few plays by then. And, and Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue was his first crack at a, a feature or not even mid-length feature thing. And I left it alone. And I, I think I did a little bit of revising on it when I got, came to the School of Drama a year later um, and put it in a drawer. And Barry saw saw the kind of fevered dream version of, of that script and thought, you know, I have a way of ordering this that will allow an audience to, in community, right, understand or engage this. And I thought, that's good. That's good because I don't and I can't. And I think, I think in a lifetime you collaborate with people who not only understand your emotionality but then get what you're trying to say and can help you frame something in a way that really makes sense of the kind of chaos that you're trying to order. And, you know, I've been very fortunate. I, that happens with, you know, Tina Landau, who's a constant collaborator on my plays. She sort of sees the chaos and finds ways to order it, which, again, it takes a level of backing away from it and allowing her to, to do that, which I, it's a level of trust, yes, but also a level of respect because you respect that that person, too, wants community. And so, and so with Barry, uh, the same thing happened. It was a person who wanted people to engage in a world that they didn't often see um, and from a place of real love, um, not a place of, you know, trying to make money or trying to really just from love, trying to show in the best way he could that world. Um, and so he did that, showed me the versions that he'd created, and I thought they were stunning. And also thought that only, <laughs> you know, the 15 people from where we were who went to see independent films would see it, and that would be it. So you were just totally shocked at it, at, at the response. Barry and I really were shocked. And then the shocks kept coming, and they, even up until the last Best Picture nomination and then the Best Picture um, announcement. I mean, we just we were constantly surprised and, const and grateful but again, I don't. If you asked any of us, the uh, before the Toronto Film Festival, if we thought we were going to win three Oscars for this piece, if we said yes to that, I think you you'd, you'd Everyone find people would have laughed. Well, we would have been lying. <laughs> you know what I mean? We just we were excited to be there. We thought we'd created something beautiful. We had really great artists who we are like family. We still are very much, most of us, in contact. Andre Holland is a person that I've collaborated on many things from Wig Out in 2007 or 8 till now. Um, uh, and, you know, we keep in, in contact with each other. We try to support each other on all the things we do. We were that way not because we thought we were going to win Academy Awards together, but because we really cared about, again, it came from a place of love. We really cared about what we wanted to do. We really wanted to engage each other with it. Well, you'd already won a MacArthur Genius Award. You'd had lots of plays produced. How much would you say that winning the, the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay has changed your, your path? I felt the need to concentrate or at least reorder my steps, if anything. I thought, well, I can't keep doing this. Like, I can't keep 
having these moments that everybody's like, you should be happy, and I'm not. There's clearly something not connecting. Um, and so a lot, out of that actually came the drive to finish this uh, television show that I currently have just wrote and produced for the own network called David Makes Man. In fact, Andre Holland, again, was one of the people who championed me working on it. But um, it was a show about, you know, where I learned, you know, where I got my work ethic from and where I learned to, you know, wear so many masks in different places. How did I end up at an Ivy League school coming from, you know, um, dirt poverty, which is what I call dirt poverty. Whenever you had a floor that uh, looked onto the dirt, you were dirt poverty. Um, That's actually a line in the show, right, where he's giving a report. He says, I'm from dirt. Yeah, I'm literally from dirt. Yeah. I'm literally from dirt. And the things that I learned in that process were a lot about, you know, uh, gave me a lot of resentment and shame about who I was and then trying to figure all of that out in this world on these platforms that were mostly white and patriarchal and and then trying to, you know, be happy in that. And I couldn't figure out why I wasn't. And a lot of it started with, you know, not being my full self. When that began to happen for me is one what I wanted to investigate. So I created this show called David Makes Man, which is about that, about the times as a young person, we start to make up who we are going to be in the world. And then we spend, you know, the next 50 years being that person. So I find it really interesting that Moonlight, your first Broadway production, Choir Boy, mm. which you'd done earlier, but and this new TV series, David Makes Man, they're all very personal. From my perspective, they're sort of drawn from the same well of inspiration. Mm. What do you think it is about these works and this moment in our culture that makes them resonate so so strongly? For me, and what's 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 necessary for me is that I have a deep and abided interest in the future. And in order for us to, to really invest in the future, we have to look at it. We have to investigate the past. And so I am using myself as a template, looking at the fissures created uh, along the fault line of coming of age or into adulthood. And for black youth, for black youth on the margins of poverty, for black youth along the margins of poverty and, um, and divergent, quote unquote, sexual identity, um, that is, quote-unquote, thought to be queer or not the norm. There are so many nuances to what it means to come of age. It could be just focusing on the first love you ever had. It can be looking at the way in which you think of yourself as labor in this country. Um, I mean, add to that, you know, the way in which black women uh, function in this society or try to function in the society, you start seeing all kinds of things that are socialized at a very early age and crystallized there. I, I love this idea that um, in the Torah where it talks about why, you know, you had to be in the desert for uh, those many generations before you could see the promised land. Um, and it was basically, <laughs> I mean, the Torah <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the Old Testament are pretty mean about it, but it was basically so that the old generation had died out, so that nobody who was ever born under the suffering of slavery and the old systems would bring that system into the new place. Well. I am a little bit different than that. I believe that we've got to interrogate the systems. Um, we've got to interrogate why the adults we are function under those systems and then unteach that or, or, or take those away from uh, the folks who are coming up now. So we can't sort of just blame them for the world that we've, we've made. We have to investigate why they were socialized to make it in the first place. And so I'm always interested in that. I'm interested in those stories and how they play out. 
but I also am, am very cognizant of, uh, and I think this is Hume, so forgive me if I'm mixing up my Hegel slash Hume references, but somebody thought thinks about um, uh, cultures as uh, along the human, uh, human development scale. Um, and it would be pretty apt to say that in, if we look at the United States of America in terms of a culture, we are at that you know, stage between adulthood and, um, and, and childhood where you no longer can forgive it for not knowing or for rushing in headstrong. Uh, it's old enough now that the mistakes it's going to make are going to be lifelong. <laughs> Um, and and if it doesn't go back and figure out some of its earlier transgressions and apologize for them, and and or it, if it doesn't investigate its early traumas, um, they're going to linger on in these these kind of defense mechanisms we have. That sounds a little heady, but if you really look at the development of the human being, and look at the development of the United States, and look at again, the traumas, whatever you want to name them as, and what we have investigated and apologized for and, you know, made some restitution to, it plays out that if you don't do that in your human life, those things stick with you and they hinder you. Um, they form defenses that you don't necessarily need anymore. Uh, so I think it's important that, that a lot of art is reflecting that. A lot of um, the storytelling that we're doing um, has a lot of sort of introspection about, you know, how we got to the places that we are. Oprah calls um, David Makes Man unapologetically black. Or in an interview, someone said that. And, and oh, it was me. I definitely call it unapologetically black. Okay, there you black. go. Uh, um, maybe I, she did too, but I definitely call it that. I'm just curious, <laughs> in, both that, in both that piece and in Choir Boy, it's set in a school system where you also once referred to um, a talented 10th. Mm. Can you speak to why that moment in education and where Talented Tenth comes from, from W.E.B. Du Bois' idea of a select few who, can, who are exceptional, and, and speak to why that's so important to your work? Well, for a long time I subscribed to the notion of the Talented Tenth, and then I realized that it was bullshit. This idea that there is, you know, there is a group of talented folk who have a certain type of talents who will lead the people is sort of just playing right back into the patriarchy that has, you know, uh, left us voiceless for so long uh, and left an elite-ness uh, that happens. But because the soci society still adheres to it, regardless of whether they will give um, uh, W.E.B. his credit for it, we think of there being gifted folk in a community who should take those talents and give them to the main of society, right? We often say that if you are black and gifted and, and, and or talented, you will be, you know, one or two in the room where it happens, at the table. You're allowed to be, you know, you're the exception to the rule. Um, and what that does often is it does drain the community of some of its most talented and creative people because you're taught very early on, even in the, the notion of being bused to gifted and talented schools, that outside of your community is where your opportunity lies, away from these people who love you, know you, um, gr are growing with you, are in the same positions you are, experience the same stressors. Away from them is where your opportunity is. And 
that gets socialized in conscious and unconscious ways and people sort of take hold of that and they leave that community and that community then, of course, you know, is left uh, lacking some of its talented. So it's really important to think about that because they're not the only talented people in that community. They're not the only gifted people in that community. But if you're taking, you know, what one thinks of as uh, an elite few out of it, that's less folks to help that, that community. Um, and similarly, uh, Essex Hemfield talked about, um, you know, when uh, queer black folks are perceived to have a better life or ability outside of the community, um, mayhaps in academia, the talent that they have is then robbed from that community. Um, and he proposed in a lot of ways, very, and I read this very early on in life and didn't, re and it stuck with me, but I didn't really understand it until it had happened. Um, that regardless of the, the, um, the uncomfortabilities and the stressors in our community, the community needs our voices, right? It needs our talents. And how do, how do I help find ways to mend the bridge back to the community that is suffering because of, because of the brain, talent, um, people drain? You know, even my neighborhood, Liberty, Liberty City, if you make a certain amount of money, you move out of Liberty City, you move to another area, and you don't necessarily move to another area that is concentrated of black folks. So we're losing a lot of folks, a lot of economics, uh, a lot of politics that can go on and undergird the community and culture that exists there. So th it's, a, it's always very important to me to look at that because I, again, care about community so deeply. And if I say this to my students all the time, I, I say, look at the place that you came from to come to this august school one of the oldest playwriting programs in the in the nation. Um, a lot of our students go on to you know the big time platforms for writing, which is you know in in LA, uh, Chicago, uh, New York, and London. And we have you know almost every year of co a cohort has at least one person who is making a big name there. But then of the other. Uh, cohort, there are people who are making a living, but in those places. And I say to my, I say to my students, and I say to myself, remember where you came from, and that when you're here and thinking about going to those platforms, if you're not from there, then, you know, that corner of the world is missing their storyteller. That village, that tribe is missing the person who held the records and understanding and the cultural tapestry of who they are. If that's fine with you, great. <laughs> But it's, it, it's something you should think about. But for you, you're trying to hang on to that personally. I don't try. I do. I, I mean, I still, again, my, currently my address is <laughs> the same address I've had for 20, you know, for 40, almost 40 years. Right. Home, home isn't necessarily within academia. It's No. I mean, I practice here and I get, I, again, I, ex I do great exchange here and I create as much community as I can, but I'm often, you know, trying to either drag my students <laughs> back home with me or, you know, or making sure that my home has a platform in which I can engage. This other interesting thing that I heard you talk about elsewhere, which really struck me, is this idea of code switching. Mm. And I wonder if you could just explain what that means to you and how in both David Makes Man it's happening and how, how maybe to this very day you feel that original person or, or one part of you and a different part of you that that's maybe speaks differently. Well, I think all people code switch. I mean, in our society, code switching isn't 
relegated to just race, gender. It's everywhere because there is a kind of codified professionalism that it doesn't make any real sense, actually. But um, I'm almost sure the way you speak at home and to your intimate uh, uh, folks, to your family, is not the same way you would to, you know, to me or to a professional or to someone you just met or to, you know, the president at Yale. It's you have to, you take into consideration where you are and you adjust. When you are then socialized to believe that that adjusting will keep you safe, bring you more monetary value, give you access to things you don't necessarily have access to, it can become dangerous. You're incentivized to make more performance than genuine reaction. Not only is that not necessarily um, a problem, a lot of people have to do it to, like I said, remain safe. The problem can be can become when you are no longer recognized, especially if you learn it too early in life, you no longer recognize when it's necessary. You think every moment is a moment of strategy, of survival, rather than a moment of, of just living, of being who you want to be because you can. And that level of freedom is afforded to those with more privilege and access than a lot of us. That, that element of the story is central to David Makes Man. Yeah. Speak to why you think that would appeal to Michael B. Jordan and Oprah Winfrey, who decided to, to produce it. Well, I didn't have to speak to why it would to them. They told me, right? So I just told them that that's something that I'm interested in. What I just told you about people performing for access and capability and safety. And they said, oh, I've done that. <laughs> Or, oh, I lived that way. And, I, and like I said, I, I think you could find almost across the board um, folks of various walks of life who, who are engaging in that. And again, the capitalism in which we live, there's a, there's a kind of drive to, you know, find a way to smaller yourself, smallen yourself, which isn't a word, uh, or embiggen yourself, which is a word, um, so that, you know, you're perceived in a specific way that is palatable. Right, that will that that we as a we will allow you more access or less access, and I think again when you make young folks who are still forming who they are do that too early, it gets really difficult for them to stop doing it, and we miss out on what could be their genuine reactions, their genuine um, interests, you know the 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 true color of who they are. You know Martha Graham once said, "There's only one you." And when you refuse to set the art through the prism of you, we miss out on a beautiful color. And that's absolutely true. And we do it so often in our communities. And I think that plays out more often in my work than most people think. Um, because in Choir Boy, it, it's, it's not that, fa that Ferris isn't talented. He is. But we keep telling him to be talented in a specific way. And so therefore, if we keep telling him to be talented in this specific way, don't we miss out on what that talent could be in the world? Regardless of whether or not it's, you know, the most popular, you know, the drum isn't always the most popular element in the orchestra. And yet we, we need that drum. <laughs> we need to hear it. It needs to be, there's something's got to keep that rhythm. Um, you know, the oboe may not be the most popular instrument. And yet, you know, it's E allows us to tune the rest of the, you know what I mean? You just have to make room for all the instruments and all the sounds. And I think in David, in Moonlight, in uh, Wig Out, I'm always looking at how we're being asked to hear each other or see each other. 
In what ways can we make more room? Well, you mentioned Wig Out. I saw Wig Out at the Vineyard Theater, directed by Tina Landau, and, yeah. and uh, that was about ten years ago. And apart <laughs> from more maybe more, apart from Jenny Livingston's Paris is Burning, there really hadn't been much about kind of drag culture and houses and the way things worked in there. And it feels like between then and now, the world has totally changed. That's and right. I'm wondering why you think that happened and how it feels to have seen that happen. And it feels as though, I don't know, maybe you're central to that change in, in that, I don't know, maybe not. You tell me. Sure. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> but maybe, maybe. I think one of the things that uh, the democracy that has happened in terms of information, you know, we're in the information age and we're in, and it's at a crest. And at some point, we're going to watch it not be at a crest, um, which will be a dangerous time. But the ability to see and know things. So you mentioned Paris is Burning, which I think is an exquisite example. Um, exquisite in that Drag houses have been around in our in our culture since the beginning of you know what we think of as the United States. There have been documents of especially people along the the margins of black and brown finding ways to pageant for each other, and then specifically those black black and brown bodies who are queer um, were finding ways to have cotillions, and that we've got no we've got you know documents of that in Chicago happening, and you know the 20s, you know, and in New York and in Atlanta. And so the, they've been, it's been there forever. But the ability to access that understanding uh, hasn't. So Jenny Livingston made this film. She put it on a platform. Again, she had access, more access than a lot of folks um, in the community had at that time. And people saw it. And then, again, it wasn't like it could be put on a streaming system and send around the world at that moment. You still had to watch it on film. You still had to, like I did, rent it from the library and then sneak it because your parents were like, well, why the hell are you watching this thing, right? So once, and so by the time Wig Out came along, we were right at the moment where things started to, started to open up in another way, where you could live stream from a ball, where you could hear and see, you know, songs made for ball culture specifically and how they started to become popular. And again, there were moments even before we got with, with Madonna's Vogue, where someone again had more access than a lot of folks in the community, and then uh, so people got access via that, that platform. And so between then, you got young folks, really young folks, who may not have a lot of access, but have a smartphone, and can you know film them voguing down on runway um, even in the most, you know... Um, the darkest room. The darkest room, yeah. exactly. With clarity, yeah. right? That you can see it and then they can date it and document it. And that, that changed a lot of what's happening. Um, it also meant that science and um, the conversations around transgender lives needed to shift and change. I mean, uh, my friend Trace Lissette says all the time, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't even have the words to describe transitioning and how we transition, and, and what we called folks. And in the days of uh, Marsha P. Johnson, we didn't even have the word transgender just yet. We didn't have the, the language. Um, and so language, of course, had to follow um, access, had to follow folks who were now engaged. We had to find ways to talk to each other about these things, and that's been great and amazing. It also 
is shining a light on something that has been happening in this community for forever, which is, you know, the the violence and danger that uh, especially trans women of color face often um, because by just being themselves, being alive. The good news is, is that we know more about that now. The bad news is, is that we're still not doing anything about it. But that didn't just start happening. That's been happening. Um, and in numbers that, you know, if we really knew the numbers, because even as a, even anecdotally, as a kid growing up in drag houses and around drag houses, so the number of people who died from violence was staggering. I could count off three or four just, just now. And that's, you know, again, I was only a part of a drag house. I was never a part of a drag house. I was only dating someone in a drag house for, you know, two or three years. So... That was always important to me to make sure that people understood is that I was not trying to represent drag houses. I was literally telling a story of a boy who fell in love with a girl who was a part of a drag house. Um, and, that was and that was necessary. But now there are folks in the drag scene, in the drag ball scene, who are people who are transgender, people who are drag queens, people who aren't drag queens. Uh, drag kings can tell their own story. And then become a celebrity. Become a celebrity, but also beco become an art maker. Yeah. which I think a lot of uh, folks don't understand, is that folks really are artists and don't want the celebrity of, you know, necessarily hosting a talk show, but want to create art. And because we're so engaged in the spectacle of just seeing them now, like we just are so excited that we're seeing them for the first time that we're not getting over the fact that here's a person who's creating nuanced, intelligent art, and we need to move out of the way so that they can do that. So you did this show, Ms. Black for President, and you performed in the title role. Mm. Why, why was it important for you to get back up on stage in, in a role like that? Well, the role called for a 35-year-old black man who identified as queer, who had lost people they loved to age-related complications. And I'm the only person that I know of in the ensemble who fits that bill. So it called for that body to be in space and represent that, uh, that story. Did you feel like you learned something about the writing process by performing or was oh, it? Oh, every time you perform, you learn about the writing process. But again, that goes back to what we talked about earlier. I mean, my earliest understanding of how to write a story was to do it and then write it down. So last question. Um, we could talk all day, but <laughs> is, what, what kind of stories do you want to see more of? Um, that's a good question. I want to see more stories from transgender artists. I want to see more stories from uh, black artists on the continent. Um, I want to see more stories from indigenous artists from around the world. Um, yeah. And because we do have one more minute, Royal Shakespeare Company, mm. what did you do with them and what did you get out of that? Uh, I was their international writer in residence, and so I spent a lot of time reading and watching Shakespeare and uh, stealing some of his tools to put into my own work. Um, but I also realized, I mean, I think the, the most important thing I realized is that, you know, again, stories, uh, plays particularly, are meant to be seen. Um, and it was one of the, one of the revel revelations of my time there, which is that, you know, you could read these stories and, and like them. Or you could get somebody. You could read them aloud with people, and then really like them. Um, or you can go see them, and 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 love them. And I thought 
uh, this is what that means. It means that our story, the stories that we create, no matter how old they are, no matter how, you know, royally supported they are, they need to be seen by everybody. Well, Terrell Alvin McCraney, thank you so much. Um, it's been a joy to watch your work develop over the years. And uh, last question, I guess, is what's next? You have something in the works that you can tell us about or you're busy with your cohort of, uh, of other writers? Thank you for having me. I think the thing that I'm walking away from this conversation thinking about is not necessarily what my, my work is, but you know, whom can I make more space for? How can I put the practice of the question that I put in my work in reality or in tangible ways? Like who can I support? Whom can I make room for that um, more or make more room for? It's an important question that I put in my work, but it's, it, is it important that I need to put work into? The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. We'd also like to thank the American Masters interns for their contributions to this episode, Christina Darko and Giovanna Drummond. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to give us a rating or a review and tell a friend about us or share a favorite episode. See you in a couple weeks.